This episode of Radio Vet Nurse was proudly brought to you by Zilkeen. Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast with your host, Kat Robinson. You're listening to Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast for vet nurses where we tell our story. I'm your host, Kat Robinson. Vet nursing can be a tough gig, and yet we absolutely love it. So when it comes to vet nurses, who are we? How do we achieve greatness? How do we cope with the more challenging parts of our job? Radio Vet Nurse is our way to start a dialogue around these questions and to create a space where we can tell our story. Each episode, you'll hear from a different vet nurse about their personal experiences in life and in vet nursing. In this episode, I caught up with Trish Farry, clinical academic at the University of Queensland. Trish was on my radar from when this podcast started forming in my brain in early 2018. At the time, she was the 2017 Hills Vet Nurse of the Year. Since then, I've had the pleasure of meeting Trish through VNCA circles and seeing her speak at conference. Trish has a varied role at the university with some time on the floor at the hospital, some teaching undergrad vet science and vet tech students, academic research and mentoring for the vet tech program. She's one of those positive global forces in our industry, sitting on numerous international veterinary emergency and critical care technicians boards and committees and the current VNCA board of directors. Anesthesia is such an important part of the veterinary nurse and technician's role and Trish really knows her stuff. I took the liberty of picking her brain on the topic and hope that you find her practical information useful and enjoy our chats in general just as much as I did. Hello, Trish. Welcome to Radio Vet Nurse. How are you going this afternoon? I'm great, Kat. Thank you for having me. This is pretty exciting. It's really exciting for me too. I've been wanting to get you on the show for a while. Um, I know you're pretty busy, but do you listen to any podcasts? Well, truthfully, no, I don't, but I have listened to a couple of episodes. Well, to be really truthful, one of the Radio Vet Nurse, <laughs> but now I plan on listening to them all. I think um, they're really informative and it's great to hear about other people because we all get stuck in our own little bubbles yeah, and you know it's it's just really nice to hear what other people are doing. And congratulations on your ten thousand downloads for one year too. Good job. Thank you. I was, as I said, I nearly fell off my chair when I saw that. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I was um very excited. Who did you listen to? Did you listen to Arnhul? No, I didn't actually. I just listened to Janet's in Janet's um oh, podcast. Janet's good, yeah. good. And I know where you're from, but um, where are you from, and where do you currently live? Well, I was actually born in Brisbane, but I was raised in North Queensland um, in a little sugarcane town called Serena, which is just south of Mackay. Um, I was schooled in Brisbane and I've pretty much been in Brisbane ever since. Awesome. And so when did you move to Brisbane? How old were you? Uh, Well, I went to boarding school in Brisbane, so I was there for high school. So I guess we're 14 when I moved to Brisbane and have been here ever since. And what part of Brisbane are you living in? I'm in Mount Crosby, so that's sort of uh, a rural area um, just on the sort of the western suburbs um, because I work out at the University of Queensland at Gatton, so that's very rural on the way to Toowoomba. So I sort of live about half an hour from work. Yeah, I was wondering if you moved because you would have worked at St. Lucia before that, wouldn't? D- did you? Yeah, yeah, I did. And I, I love the St. Lucia campus. I mean, it's such a beautiful campus. It's glorious. Is that where you studied? 
Matt studied at St. Lucia. Um, I studied, I did my law degree at Griffith Uni actually. And before that I was in Melbourne at RMIT, but yeah, I I have been to St. Lucia a few times and, um, and it's just a beautiful trip across the ferry, across the city cat from West End. So yeah, it's really, really beautiful. Whereas, um, Griffith Uni was, um, sort of just man eating monitor lizards and (laughs) bush. (laughs) Well, Gatton University now is brown snake territory. So. Oh, good for the teaching facility. <laughs> well, not so great for the staff. There's signs everywhere. Watch where you walk. Oh, no. Yeah. yeah. So it's a common occurrence in, in snake season. We we see lots of snakes on campus and emails will go out every now and then saying there's been a snake sighted in such and such an area and security has been notified. So it's like yeah. interesting. So for people that listen to this podcast from like the States and the UK, it is just like you think it is (laughs) in Australia. Everything will kill you. (laughs) Yeah, there are literally like crocodiles swimming off the beach up in in North Queensland up here. And yeah, Trisha's looking out for snakes on her way into work. Uh, I saw a brown (laughs) snake in my yard a few months ago. It it is just like they say. So uh, it's beautiful, but slightly petrifying as well. (laughs) Beautiful, but deadly. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's it. And how did you get your foot in the door with vet nursing, Trish? Oh, that's it's a it's a quite an interesting story. It was it was a mistake, actually. I <laughs> when I was in high school, I was going to be a journalist. Sort of, I grew up in the or I was in high school in the eighties, and Yarn Event and Sixty Minutes was I was going to be the next Yarn Event, and that's really aging me. It's telling you how old I am. <laughs> but I wasn't science orientated at all. And um, when I finished high school, I was accepted to go over to Europe on a exchange scholarship. And then we found out um, a few months later that they'd fallen through. And I thought, oh, I better get a job before I apply to go to uni because, you know, I've got 10 months to kill now pretty much. And the only thing that I'd done was I'd done a, a fill-in for our local country vet in Serena for six weeks. So that was the only job I'd ever done. Mm. So I thought, well, that's the only experience I've ever, I've ever had. So I'll apply for a vet nursing job. And, and I guess the rest is kind of history. I worked in private practice for a year before applying for a job at, at the University of Queensland. And I started out there as a surgical nurse and I've been through quite a few different roles there from surgery to anesthesia to director of nursing and and then I took on an academic role which is more um, sort of involved with the the teaching of the veterinary technician students um, because we now have a vet tech degree at UQ so I've been incredibly lucky Um, it's been a wonderful place to work Um, I've I haven't been there continuously I've taken a couple of years off and did in travel to the UK and and also went and helped set up a private referral practice in Brisbane. Um, but I always, I'm like a homing pigeon. I always end up back there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised to hear that, that you were drawn firstly to the humanities because you strike me as a very sciencey vet nurse, um, like a very technical um, and knowledgeable vet nurse in, in, in that sort of side of things. So um, it's crazy, isn't it, how mm. sometimes there's, you know, your life just has a different idea of what's going to happen and, and you just roll with it. Yeah. Yeah. I was one of the, I remember in high school there was, because I, I went to a fairly big high school and there was only two students that didn't do biology and I was one of them. <laughs> 
Yeah, so was I at my <laughs> high school. I originally was going to do biology, but it, it was on the same line as music and that was like my favourite. So I was like, well, guess no science for me. So I didn't actually do science past year 10. Yeah. <laughs> and so you ended up g- getting into the University of Queensland system mm-hmm. um, pretty early on. Did you say it was a year yeah. in general practice first? Yeah, yeah. So I started work at UQ when I was 18. I was wow. a baby. And I, I just remember it. I mean, I was so petrified of the students because, you know, at that stage, they were veterinary students, they're all in final year and they're like, you know, 22, 23. And like, they were yeah. so smart and so grown up and I'm this 18 year old. <laughs> and I just remember I, I was just so intimidated by them to start with. And um, yeah, and now I'm old enough to be well, I'm I'm old enough to be their mother and some of them's grandmothers. Right? <laughs> so it's really grounding when you look back. Yeah, yeah. I, I especially think in Queensland because in New South Wales you finish school a bit later, but mm. in Queensland you get uh, vet students who are starting when they're 17 and you're like, oh, my God, you're just a baby. Like mm-hmm. how can you already be finished vet school? Mm. They obviously have a lot more maturity than I did because I certainly was not doing anything that mature when I was 23. Well. Well, I mean, some of the things I saw them do, you know, the, the smokos and those sorts of things, and I'm sure your husband can tell you about all of those sorts of things. Yes, yes, that's <laughs> right. Have a fun and time. That's right. And actually, uh, when I worked as a solicitor in Brisbane, um, the main one of the main clients for the firm that I worked at, I was in in um, litigation defence, and we acted mainly for insurers, um, and we acted for the insurers of several of the universities. And um, I have to say, I have seen several <laughs> claims associated with those events in my time. So yeah, I, I do know that there is a little bit of um, letting letting the hair down at times as well, which is important. I think it's really important. Like it's there's so many stresses being a student and and I think even more these days uh, you know I think 20 years ago student life was completely different yeah you know, now every student has a job like they've got to support themselves like there's hex fees to pay for like higher education used to be free and there's a lot more to do at home as well like the first degree I did was pretty much all face to face and you were in a lecture theater you were lucky if there was like a screen behind the lecturer but it was like books, libraries, lecturers. And then when I went back and did my next degree, it was all like the blackboard and the online thing and, you know, download the slides. And um, I think you can just be totally surrounded by it and working when you're at school and when you're at home and, you know, sort of compelled to be doing it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I I don't actually think necessarily that's better. Um, No. Like, yeah, we'll we'll literally get 20 to 30% of students turn up to lectures these days because you know, they can watch them online. You know, back in in the yep. days when I was studying, you you know, the lecturers had slide carousels yeah. <laughs> and, and you took notes. Like there yep. were none of these lecture recordings and course notes given to you. It's And if you, you weren't at the lecture, you'd have to ask your mate for notes. That's right. Can you take notes for me? I can't be there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Old school. Love it. Yeah. And so <laughs> what is your role now at UQ and what do you do from day to day as part of that role? So I guess my title is I'm a clinical academic and I still do clinical work um, in anesthesia. So I'm a, a clinical anesthetist, so to speak. And I probably only spend 20 to 30 of my percent of my time on the floor doing anesthesia. The rest of the time I'm involved with teaching the undergraduate vet and vet tech students, um, mm-hmm. you know, whether it be in prac classes or lectures or tutorials. 
Um, I have a lot to do with the vet tech course now, um, so I coordinate quite a few courses within that program and I'm the, the mentor for the vet tech program, so all those sorts of things keep me pretty busy day to day. That sounds great. And what's the best part of your job? The best part of my job is when you find out that you made a difference and you had no idea that you mm. made a difference. Um, you know, we all get so busy and, and tied up in what we're doing day to day and it's really easy for us to brush people off and and you never know the impact that has on people. And and I guess we get teaching evaluations every year by the students and they're completely anonymous so we have no idea who they come from. So the students can be really truthful and blunt and, you know, we just have to suck it up. And and to read, you know, that you made a difference to somebody and you had no idea, to me, that's just, it's such an incredible gift. And it's something mm. when you read it that you're really grateful f for doing what you do. Yeah, that's right. I know I hear um, Matt and our other vet, Sophie, often talking about um, people who made a, a real difference for them in their studies. And I think mm. it can make a difference between a vet or a technician or a nurse who loves a certain area um, of vet medicine or who hates it because mm. it depends how comfortable you are, which depends on how um, how much you feel like you're able to take in and having a great teacher or mentor can really make all the difference when it comes to that. Absolutely, absolutely. And, I mean, that's why I do what I do in, in clinical anaesthesia. Um, you know, I was a surgical nurse but I was working with these anaesthetists that I thought, wow, what you do is really cool and I want to do it too and – and, you know, they get excited about your enthusiasm and it just grows. Um, you know, it's it's what led me into, into the field that I'm in. So. Yeah, yeah. And I think that the area that you're in is so important because um, I think that monitoring anesthesia is something that nearly all veterinary nurses would do. Um, and it's it, it can be quite um, a lot of pressure. And, I mean, I think um, – having a good vet who doesn't make you feel like you're responsible for everything and who, you know, really clearly explains you're doing this, you just let me know when this happens, but I'll be making these decisions. I think that yeah. that can make the whole situation a lot more comfortable, but still we can see quite traumatic things happening in anesthesia. Like you can feel constant low level fear or anxiety of, Hey, if something starts going wrong, I don't really know what to do. And I'm too scared to tell anyone that. Like, I think yeah. that it's a, it's an important area for us to really educate nurses in because I see it as a source of anxiety for a lot of nurses on social media. And when we do our staff appraisals, it's often something that's flagged as an area that my staff feel like that they need extra guidance with. So it's obviously mm. like a high pressure area. Yeah, it is. And, you know, as you said, it's it's life and death. Um, you know, I think a little bit of anxiety is good. I think when we become blasé about anesthesia, that's when things, yeah. you know, things happen and things go wrong. I you know, I've been doing it for, you know, anesthesia, clinical anesthesia now for well over 20 years and still I I, I get nervous. Um, you know, it's, it's how you harness those nerves and I guess it helps you prepare for the cases that you know you have coming up. And, and when I teach students, you know, I always say to them, there's no need for you to panic until I look panic. When I look panic, then it's time to panic. <laughs> but, but also... You know, I, I say to, to students all the time, you know, when you're going to go out into, into practice, you know, you have to take some responsibility. The veterinarian is the one that is liable um, for what is happening to, to this patient. But, you know, you should be working together. And, and if you're educated and you can, you know, use the right terminology when you're talking to the veterinarian, you know, say, 
you know, the patient's bradycardic, you know, don't say mm-hmm. they've got a slow heart rate and, you know, just gain their trust. And, and, you know, I said, I always say to them, you know, make some suggestions, mm. you know, ask questions, you know, ask if, if you see something and you don't know why they're doing it, you know, pick the right time to ask the question. Mm. Um, but, but ask the question and, and get an answer and have a conversation. You know, that's what it's all about. It's all about learning. And, and I learn every day, as I said, I've been doing it for, for 20 years now, but, but, you know, I can learn something every day. That's right. And I think that having those skills, as you say, to use the correct terminology and to just flag with the vet, this is what's happening with the patient, just so you know, or this is what's happening. Would you like me to do this? Hmm. And knowing the logical sequence of troubleshooting can particularly be handy if you're helping um, a new grad vet or a vet with less experience and less hours in the surgery. Because I know for years, our team was supporting Matt and he um, has done, you know, hours and hours and hours and, you know, of of Mm. surgery and he's super comfortable with it. And he can almost monitor an anesthetic by, by the, the touch of the tissue. Yeah. Yeah. While he's doing the surgery, he can feel if an animal's light or deep just based mm. on what he's doing muscle on the inside tone, of yeah, them. Yeah, yeah muscle yeah. tone and everything. Um, and so we we were kind of took a more hands off approach to monitoring. But when we got a new grad, um, we we changed that and we we definitely started with a more hands-on approach after chatting to the new grad and saying, this is what Matt likes, but would you like something more along these lines? And she said, yeah, because I'm just so focused on the surgery that I can't really be paying attention. And, you know, Matt's just listening to the machines and he can hear the beeps and he can feel the muscle. But, you know, this vet was like, I I can do all that, but Mm. I can't do all that and focus as much as I want to on the surgery. So yeah, you do need to be able to, to provide that higher level, I think of monitoring, which is, um, something that you, that you won't immediately be able to do if you've been working with an old school vet, who's just been desexing animals for 20 years. Who's like, no, I got it. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I mean, it's, it's something, as you said, you know, it's such a tremendously important thing and, and it's it's a major role of, of pretty much every vet nurse and it's something that you know we underestimate I think we get away with a lot in this industry um, and and mm. patients survive despite what we do sometimes yeah um, but yeah no I mean obviously anesthesia is my passion so I could talk forever about <laughs> anesthesia but well, that's you good, know because I think a lot of people could listen a lot about <laughs> anesthesia and, and yeah, yeah, I think we have so much, so much value to add to a practice um, in that role. Definitely. Absolutely. And what's your routine when you wake up in the morning? How are you setting yourself up for a day at uni and getting ready to dodge over the brown snakes and <laughs> <laughs> croc hunter your way into your desk? <laughs> well, I guess I'd love to say I get up and have a run and meditate then have a good breakfast, but that'd be a big lie. <laughs> Same. <laughs> I'd love to say that. And I could just bullshit my way through this. but <laughs> I do have the big breakfast bit, none of the rest. <laughs> so, I mean, I literally, I wake up, I, I check my email, which is not what I recommend everyone do first thing in the morning. Yeah. Um, and see what's coming overnight because I guess quite a few organizations I'm involved with are in the US. So, everything's happening while I'm asleep. So I miss out on a whole lot of conversations. So sometimes I can wake up to, you know, a flurry of 50 emails from AVECT or something. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I sort of try and catch up on those. And, you know, I guess I I check my diary, see what I've got on for the day and plan the day. And Mm -hmm. 
and drive to work, put on some good music that makes me smile and try not to get road rage. (laughs) (laughs) Is there road rage between Mount Crosby and Gatton? No, there's not. Actually, that is one of the best things about working at Gatton and where I live. I do not go through one set of traffic lights to get to work. It's just out on the freeway driving. And the only thing that is a bit... um, a bit upsetting is there's always lots of roadkill on the road and that sort of really yeah. upsets me because there's sort of lots of dead things on the side of the road which I don't deal with very well. But but no, it's it's quite a good drive and it's it's um you know a good half hour at least. So I like to listen to some good music or catch up with friends on the phone. So was Mount Crosby closer to St Lucia? Uh, it's probably equidistant, but yeah, okay. but yeah. there's just so much traffic going into into the city. Um, yeah. You know, it, it would take me probably a good hour to get to St. Lucia. And I still go to St. Lucia sometimes because I've actually just started a master's. I've enrolled in a master's oh. and that's in, believe it or not, fish anesthesia. <laughs> So, oh. <laughs> awesome. So, so I'm now anaesthetizing a lot of zebrafish because there's a huge zebrafish colony at St. Lucia because they're used a lot in research because they've got a fairly similar genetic structure to humans. So huh. there's not a lot known about anesthesia. They sort of just throw them into a bit of something in the water and, and, and they go to sleep. But hopefully we're going to do some, some more research on what good anesthesia and analgesia is in those fish. So I get to go to St. Lucia a bit, which makes me happy. So is that what you do? You dose the water? Yeah, yeah. Hmm, yeah. So genius. I've, I've just done a, a pilot study with comparing the two formulations of alfaxalone. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's called immersion anesthesia. So, you know, you put a, a certain um, concentration of anesthesia into, into the water and, and put the fish in and then see how they react, basically. We didn't kill anything, which is very good. That's good. Um, but I'm, I'm actually presenting that research this year at IVEX, which is, is scaring the crap out of me because I've never actually had to present a scientific presentation, so to speak, or scientific research. Yeah, um, right. Yeah. You know, all the, all the presentations I do are pretty much, I guess you think of them, you know, they're kind of like literature reviews. You're looking at everything that's out there and everything that you do and, and you know, you teach people that stuff. But but this is sort of hardcore research, which is, again, a, an entirely different ball game for me. So it's statistics and all those sorts of things, which I don't understand at all. Oh, that's interesting you should say that because when I see you present, I always would would say it's a really clinical sort of presentation. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I see what you mean. There is that next level where, where you presenting data and numbers mm. and this is what we did and at this dose rate and this many times and these are the stats. And so, yeah. yeah. And where is um, IVEX? Uh, this year it's in DC. So That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And the the groups that you're part of that you're getting the emails overnight, they're like veterinary technician groups? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm the board of directors for the Academy of Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care Technicians So, mm-hmm. and also on part of the program committee for the International Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care Symposium. So, um, you know, it's sort of getting some of the program together for that conference and, um, you know, there, I guess there's a, there's a lot going on leading up to the conference and also – with the academy, uh, with exams coming up and all that sort of thing. So, And you're also super involved with the BNCA. I don't know how you're fitting all these things into your life. <laughs> oh, when, when I look at people like you, I'm, I have such a cruisy life. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 you know, I don't have children to deal with. Like, I, yeah. <laughs> True toddlers take up a fair bit of time, but it's <laughs> yes. like not really productive time. It's like, you know playing with him on his scooter or in the sandpit for five hours going, oh, I've got so much to do, but well, this is what I'm doing. Well, that's productive for him though. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, VNCA. So I'm on the board of directors for the VNCA, which is also incredibly exciting because I guess a lot of my involvement has been with overseas um, organisations because I, I was also on the board of directors for the International Veterinary Academy of Pain Management and also the Anesthesia Academy. Wow. And to be close to home now um, is, is kind of exciting. Um, and some of the initiatives of ENCA are, uh, are coming up with now, like I guess registration and all those sorts of things. Um, like I'm just riding the wave, like they've done all the work. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's so exciting to be part yeah. of that now. It um, is. It's a great time to be part of it. Yeah. And just I had no idea, you know, what goes on behind the scenes. Like I had, you know, I had no idea and of how well the organization is run. Um, mm. You know, it's just, it's, you know, it's incredibly schmick. Like, you know, there's a lot of people behind the scenes doing a lot of work and, and, you know, probably me doing the least amount of work. I shouldn't say that on air, should I? <laughs> but, I think some of them listen, Trish. <laughs> but, you know, they're all incredibly passionate about what they do and, and yeah. they're also invested in it and and that makes you excited about it. Um, so, you know, I'm incredibly grateful and, you know, what a wonderful group of people as well, um, you know, you obviously know most of them and, mm. and you know, they're just all so – so excited about the future of the industry and I think that's what we need. I agree and it is really contagious like since yeah. I've been involved and and um and I guess contributing more to different committees and that sort of thing I feel the same I'm really pumped now and I was before but when you start getting connected um to these uh groups and and understanding what's happening behind the scenes to push the industry forward you're like oh this is so cool like this has been the product of 20 plus years and now mm. we're we're getting there mm. now what weekly or daily habit makes your life better um God, that's a hard one I think I'm a compulsive list maker and box ticker <laughs> yeah I have to have lists with boxes next to them that I can tick them um, you know, I've also got a whiteboard up in my office that, you know, has deadlines on it to help me focus on what needs to be done. And That's good. And, you know, I also write little quotes up there sometimes to, to motivate me or, or, you know, sometimes they're not politically correct ones, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I love Dr. Seuss. Like Dr. Seuss is one of my favorite philosophers. <laughs> so yeah, perfect. I quite often have something Dr. Seuss written up on my whiteboard or... I think the one that, that was up last week was, I think it's something about it's been a good day when I didn't have to unleash the flying monkeys, you know, the old, <laughs> old Wizard of Oz one. And something else that I, I put up there too is I'm, I'm, I, I always say yes, like, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm sure you're the same. People ask you to do stuff and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I can do that. You know, it's it's like if you want something done, you ask a busy person. Yeah, that's right. And I've right. just gotten to the stage now where I've actually written it up on my whiteboard 2020, say no thank you. Yeah. <laughs> just, just to remind yeah. you that you can say no. You don't have to say yes to everything. That is one of the most valuable lessons and turning points I think you can ever reach because you just set yourself to self-destruct. Like mm. when you just keep saying yes, 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 and doing more and more and more. And I'm having to actively make myself do that at the moment because I've got 10 weeks to go until I have this second child. And in the meantime, I've got emails coming into me with people going, oh, could we do this with the podcast? Or, oh, would you like to be part of this? And I have to just like really saying to myself, Kat, 
you just have to say no. Like mm. you, you just have to pick this up again in like mm. six months or a year. It's okay to say no. And then exactly. like it's really hard to write back to someone and say, I've actually just got too much on my plate at the moment and mm. I'm trying to say no to some things. I'd really love to say yes, but I have to say no. And then they go, okay, no worries. And you're like, oh, <laughs> that was actually really easy. And I guess another thing that I, that I like to remind myself of sometimes and I, I tell this to other people is, None of us ever die wishing we'd worked more. No. Like yeah. It's, it's just it's just finding that balance and and being in this profession, it's that's something that we're very bad at doing. Totally. Is finding the balance. Yeah, and particularly like for those of us who who have like an interest in the profession that is um, not purely work that is just mm. like a part of a, a passion. Like it's hard sometimes to to find that balance and go, well, maybe I should also be really interested in something that's just nothing to do with veterinary science. Mm. Mm. And that's really hard when I, it is. I, I look at my friends and I cannot name a friend that isn't in the industry. <laughs> that's really sad, isn't it? But then we have other interests, Trish, like wine and travel and fine But they're dining. all tied up with the industry. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, well, it's a good lot anyway. And do you have any strange habits or superstitions? Um, I always put my left sock on first. Oh, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm oh, kidding. Damn it. I was going to be so ready to take a deep dive and pretend that like I have a clinical psychology qualification to, to dissect that Trish. Don't let me down. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I don't think I have any, I guess the thing that I would find probably 50% of the people I know think is strange are that I love the previews at the movies and have oh. to be there in time for the previews. Yeah, <laughs> that is a little bit strange, but yeah, it's 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 no left sock on first, Trish. I, w- I wish you hadn't destroyed that one for me. <laughs> and I guess also when I'm flying, I'm one of those people that has to get to the airport really early. Me and, too. And I just, the best part about going to the airport is getting that luggage checked. Yep. And knowing that you're not going to see it for a long time. Yep. And, and just relaxing. And, and I don't particularly want people to go to the airport with me and see me off. I just want to go to the airport and just relax. I'm so the same. And I had to train Matt because when we first met, he was like a last minute kind of guy who felt like he was wasting his life just by being at the airport any earlier than he had to be. And he used to miss flights. And now he's <laughs> like seen the light and he understands like me and you that when you get to the airport early and you check that luggage and you don't have to worry anymore about the traffic jam mm-hmm. or you're, you've got too much weight and you've got to pay the extra thing, or you've realized you've forgotten this, like once you've gotten to the airport, none of that matters if you've forgotten something you're now just going to buy it um as long as you've got like your phone and your wallet and yourself like you're going and you you know your laptop maybe but then once you go through those gates you're just in this yep. alternate universe where you've got no responsibility Absolutely. you've got no stuff yep. um i love it and i mm. will quite happily wander around the airport and get a coffee or a mm-hmm. wine go to the bookstore like mm-hmm. i love being at the airport early too <laughs> kindred spirit <laughs> Now, can you think of a purchase made by you or your employer that's positively impacted your vet nurse life in recent memory? This is a really easy question, I think, and and it would be my CPD allowance every year. Ah. I think when I, when I attended my first international conference, it was back in 1998, mm-hmm. and 
Well, no, it wasn't actually because I, when I was in the UK, I went to a couple of conferences. But I guess the, the first one when I was working at UQ was was the International Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care Symposium. And I think it was in Florida at the time. And oh, I saw a space shuttle launch there. That was that was pretty incredible. That's a oh, once wow. in a lifetime thing. Wow! But but yeah, the university funded me to go to this conference, and it pretty much started my trajectory in as in my career in emergency and critical care and anaesthesia. It sort of it gave me that passion, and you know, you would go over to conferences and you'd think, oh my god, I'm in America. These are the people that write the textbooks, and I'm listening to them speak, and we're doing the same stuff like you know we're mm. we're and we're doing it well we're just probably not doing as much of it as they are so you know to me i think one of the most um i guess valuable things that my employer purchased is is cpd for me so um you know this year um going to ivex is going to be my 19th ivex <laughs> and wow. and you know i i i've been to them all and i've you know, I started off presenting a case report and now I, I lecture there and teach labs with these wow. people that I idolize. Like, you know, I'm you know, I'm I'm teaching alongside Amy and, and, and Megan and those sorts of people that like yep. oh my God, you know, they're they're incredible and and, you know, to have those doors open and those opportunities and the networking, you know, I'm just incredibly blessed. And so, yeah, to me, you know, a really valuable thing your employer can do is is invest in continuing professional development for their staff. Um, yeah, I would totally agree. And you get returns on it as a business mm. owner too because when that staff member comes back, they've got the most cutting-edge, up-to-date information and they can make suggestions and improvements. They can train other staff members. So um, it's a fantastic investment and it's good for keeping employees on because you can basically facilitate them having a, an within Australia or an international holiday once a year, you know, yeah. saying start off with the conference and then if you want some time off after, then, you know, you're already in America or yeah. Perth or wherever you are. Yeah, and it, it just keeps the passion alive for them as well. Like, you know, we all get stuck in our bubbles and I think it's so important to realise there's a big wide world out there and people do things differently and I think that's a real eye-opener sometimes. Um, Absolutely. I wonder how many practices have CPD allowance for veterinary nurses and technicians. Like I know it's pretty commonplace for vets but I'd be interested to know um, how many nurses are funded to attend um, conferences. Yeah, I mean it, it would be really interesting. I I guess speaking from experience with the conference I ran last weekend, we had about 170 delegates, which was really incredible. Mm. Um, and when, when you sort of looked at the payments coming through for those just to get an idea, probably it was about 50-50. Of paid by themselves or paid yeah. by the business. Interesting. Yeah. And yeah. I'm always I'm always so impressed with nurses that pay for themselves. Like, yeah. you know, we're, we're in such a an industry, you know, where nurses don't get paid a lot of money and, and to mm. go to a conference is a huge investment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you're taking a week of your annual leave and yeah. paying for your ticket and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, you're right. It is really impressive um, when they're when they're just choosing to to get their savings and reinvest it into their careers. Mm, yeah, we I've only been to one international conference, but I had the same kind of 
eye-opening experience of you know that there were I think there were I can't remember how many streams there were but just tons and tons of streams uh, and all those big names that you see on social media and in the textbooks and it was just like all the candies in the candy store trying yeah. to pick where yeah. you would go or getting through the um, exhibitors hall so yeah I'd love to to go to more once our business has um, grown up enough that it can manage mm. uh, without us and once our kids are grown up enough <laughs> that I can go on a flight with them for more than two hours without screaming. Well, you'll have to take them to, to VMX. I know Janet talked to you about it in her podcast, but yeah. it is, like she said, you know, close to 20,000 people and something like 30 streams going at once. And But you're in Florida and you can take the kids to Disneyland. That's crazy. <laughs> I've got cousins in Florida too, so I can just turn up and crash. So that's perfect. And leave the children with them. Hey. <laughs> Exactly. I love that. I'm your long lost Australian cousin. Mind my children. Yeah. So every January. So BMX will be in Florida every January. It doesn't move around. So plan for it in a couple of years. That's awesome. And yeah, I've heard I've heard a lot of nurses that I've interviewed say that just education is is um the the best investment that their employer has made. So yeah, I think you're on you're on the same track as a lot of people in just saying, you know, somebody who wants to pay for me to do a course or do some CPD, that is the best thing that you can buy. I thought I was being original. <laughs> <laughs> that's because you've only listened to one episode, Trish. <laughs> that's why I thought you um when you listen to a few more episodes, you'll see that um, people who might want to put just their left sock on first, like we do get some <laughs> cookie ones like that. That's why I was like, yes, another one. <laughs> well, well, what was Amy's? <laughs> Hers were mainly like um, practice-based, like yeah. – don't don't be cocky and think that you can just grab one catheter, um, oh, yeah. you know, to yeah. put in an IV catheter because True. the universe will just be like, stop being cocky, mate. Like you're going to yeah. need more than one attempt at this. Whereas, of well, course, if you given, get two catheters, like, yeah. you'll get it first go. Yeah. Um, but Anhel had a great one, which was he only gets out of bed on the right side. <laughs> it can lead to some very interesting mornings. It can, yeah. So he never gets out of bed on the left, which is why I was like, oh, this is another one of these right-left ones. But, um, yeah, you'll get to hear. Some people are like, no, I'm not at all superstitious. And other people are like, yes, this is my bag. I, I have lots of these. So Now, can you tell me about a time when you were able to turn defeat into victory? This could be in a personal or professional capacity. <clears throat> Again, like thinking about this question, it's 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 a hard one because I think, well, I don't think I've really had much defeat and that makes me feel like, you know, I've had it pretty easy. But I guess when one thing that I reflect on was I did the UK working holiday in the 90s and um, I took 12 months leave of absence from work and, and they were great. They said, yeah, we'll give you 12 months off. We think this will be, you know, a growth thing for you to do. And, and I went over to the UK and I flew over with three other vet friends of mine. And we got to Heathrow Airport and we sort of all went our separate ways. And, you know, I guess the excitement was in all the planning and, and what we we're going to do when we got there. And we sort of all just went our separate ways to, to go and work where we're going to work. And I just felt miserable and alone. And I think for every day for a week, I called my boss up at UQ and said, I want to come home. Can I come back to my job? And he said, no, you have to stay there. <laughs> and, and I ended up staying there um, and I stayed for about two years and I had the best time of my life. Like it was such an amazing experience to work in the UK. 
And, you know, I guess that's, that's something I, it was, it was kind of out of my hands because I didn't really have a choice, (laughs) (laughs) but, but, you know, I, I really valued that in the end. Well, that's a very good lesson for us all to learn from. Now, are you happy if we take a quick break and come back? Absolutely, yeah. Support for Radio Vet Nurse comes from Zilkeen. It's a supplement for cats and dogs that can help with stressful or unpredictable situations. You know the ones, thunderstorms, travel, multi-cat households, all those triggers. Zilkeen contains alpha-cazozapine to help keep the animal calm. It's the same molecule that helps keep newborns calm after breastfeeding. It's palatable and easy to give. I mix it into my dog's food. Some behavioural issues are severe and Zilkeen probably won't help these, but it works well for many pets in stressful situations. Worth a try, right? Support for Radio Vet Nurse comes from you, if you like. You can help too by scoring yourself some eco-friendly and oh-so-chic Radio Vet Nurse merch. Head to my website, radiovetnurse.com, and check out my glass reusable coffee keep cup. I've also got a lightweight, shatter-resistant glass water bottle. All with Radio Vet Nurse logo, so we know we're in the club. Wink, wink. That's all. Carry on. Welcome back, Trish. What advice would you give to someone about to enter the world of vet nursing? Um, I think I would say that you need to earn your stripes, like you need to work hard and I guess that you're in control of your future. I think the opportunities are endless for veterinary nurses, um, but I think we just have to want it enough and be willing to work for it. I, I You know, things don't get handed to us. I, I think we have to work for them and and I guess also try new stuff and don't be scared of trying new stuff. I think that's really important as well. So, um, you know, don't be afraid of the unknown. I think if you if you look at the people that you've interviewed in your podcast, um, you know, we all started out exactly the same. We all started out as trainee vet nurses and mm. we've just all taken slightly different career paths um, and, and you know, we've been rewarded uh, for, for hard work. So I think, you know, work hard um, basically would be – one of my biggest pieces of advice and and I remember when I first started out and as a surgical nurse at, at UQ and you know you, you, your finishing time could be four or five o'clock depending on what shift you're on but there, if there was interesting surgery going on I would just always say do you mind if I stayed back and you know I wasn't paid for that but it was just mm. you know I was so excited and wanted to learn about everything and and, and um, you know, sometimes you get to scrub into surgeries and, you know, when you're an 18-year-old scrubbing into surgery, you know, when, you know, someone's opening a chest and it's like, oh, my God, like that's an animal's heart beating in there. Mm. Like, you know, there are so many opportunities if you just if you just grab them if you can and don't be expected to be rewarded for them all the time, I think would be another bit of advice I would give them as well. Yeah, I love that. And I'm always really impressed too when like Matt will have to do a surgery on a Saturday afternoon or after work because we can't fit it in at any other time in the week and it needs to be dealt with now and it's come in that day. I'm always super impressed when someone's like, um, I know you told me to knock off, but can I just hang out? Because this mm. is really cool. Mm. Um, and it's good for morale too, because mm. I think then Matt gets a bit pumped when yep. um, ordinarily, you know, he might be thinking, oh God, I'm so tired and I should yep. be finishing. But, you know, if everybody else is excited and they want him to explain a bit, um, it's it's good for everyone. So and I think it can be easy too for some new nurses to join a clinic and maybe not see that these nurses that are getting to do um, the maybe the more exciting things in air quotes um, that they have earned their stripes and they might yeah. have been working at that practice for five to ten years or whatever and um, 
you know, put in that hard slog and that's why they're getting um, to do it. So sometimes rather than just um, being like, why can't I do that? Just put mm-hmm. your head down and earn your stripes and you'll be on the same trajectory. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and like I said, you know, we all started out exactly the same. It was, it was an even playing field. Um, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm no rocket scientist. Like I'm not super smart at all, um, but I just love what I do. And I think if you love what you do, that, that comes out in, in the way you work every day. Yeah, definitely. And what advice would you give to a student vet nurse struggling with their studies? Oh, we have a lot of those. <laughs> <laughs> Same. <laughs> I guess, you know, to try and put it in perspective, which is much easier said than done, um, and it's much easier from the other side of the track as well. Um, I remember when I first took on this academic role um, probably six years ago now, and one of my third-year vet tech students failed one of her final exams. And that pretty much meant that, well, it did mean she didn't graduate with the rest of her class. And and she Mm. was so devastated, understandably. Um, But I was just so impressed with the way that she just dusted herself off and got back up and she went to the graduation ceremony. She went to the graduation dinner and celebrated with her classmates. And and to me, the way she dealt with that adversity has always really stayed with me. And mm. she is a tremendously successful vet nurse now. And, you know, I would employ her at the drop of a hat. And mm. I was just always, um, I guess, a little, um, what's the word, not astounded. I was just surprised um, by how gracious she was. And I think it, at that point of my life and, and that age, I don't know if I would have been so gracious. So yeah. It's just putting everything in perspective. It can really be a mark of a person how they yeah. deal with those challenging situations and um, and it can just be tempting at that point if you're failing to be like, actually, I didn't want to do this anyway. I've just remembered, um, <laughs> which a lot of people do. Um, but just to say, well, it's going to take me a bit longer. I'm still happy for the rest of you guys. Yeah, that yeah. just shows such maturity. Yeah. And for my next question, I want to ask you this on two levels. So my question is, are there any bad or old recommendations that you hear that you think should be replaced with more useful or modern information? And I want to hear whatever answer um, would have come to your mind first, but then I also want to ask you that directly in relation to anesthesia. Um, I guess from the the first part of the question is we've always done it that way. That is yeah. one of the things that anno- that annoys me the most. Mm. Um, you know, just because we've always done it that way doesn't mean there are aren't other ways to do things. It's 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 something simple like you know when you're teaching a student how to how to put an IV catheter in. You know, I teach them my way of doing it, and I say this is what works for me. But you have to find what works for you, and as long as you do it aseptically, I don't really care what way you do it. Yeah. Um. So you know, I think it's. It's really important, and especially in the industry, there's there's so much change in the industry. Um, you know, the internet for us has been a blessing and a curse. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we have access to so much information and, and training now if we want it via the internet. You know, we just have to Google something and it's there. Mm. Um, you know, back in the old days, you know, as you said, you'd have to go to a library and look up something in a textbook or, or do a literature search or – you know, there were never videos on procedures that you could watch how to do a local block on YouTube. Like, it just wasn't there. Um, So, you know, I think the internet, um, you know, has a lot of value to us. But, you know, we also know working in the industry too, it it is, um, 
a pain in the butt sometimes because, you know, clients will come in with a, a list of differential diagnoses on what could be wrong with their pet. Because Dr. They, Google. <laughs> yes. Dr. Yes. Google will see you now. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, we've always done it that way. If someone says that, it just it just grates on me and it, it, it I nearly lose my temper because, you know, I think, you know, there are so many different ways of doing things and, and in most cases there's not only one right way to do something. There are many different ways to do it. Yeah. So, and the next one was um, anesthesia. Any bad, uh, bad or old recommendations? Uh, animals don't feel pain. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. But, I mean, again, we've come such a long way and, you know, there were, you know, and there, there probably are some veterinarians still out there that, that don't provide adequate analgesia and, and to me that is just unacceptable. Yeah, uh, in this day and age, when the drugs are readily available, clients are willing to pay for it. Mm. Um, you know, there's just there's just no excuse. And and the other thing is monitoring. I think um, you know a lot of practices may not do such a good job with monitoring. And I think a lot of practices may get away with it because they're very quick um, surgeons and they're very um, good at their procedures. But mm. you know, as I said, sometimes I think animals survive despite what we do. Mm. So, um, you know, I think we can do a lot better with monitoring um, under anaesthesia and and also critical cases um, that may not be anaesthetized. Mm. And even if you've got a vet who can, um, you know, spay a a dog in fifteen minutes or whatever, and and there, you know, the procedures are very quick, and you can do without, you know, monitoring so much, like you know, in well, in theory. Um, there will come a time when you do have a patient that needs a long surgery. And then if your nurses aren't used to monitoring, they're not going to be able to do it when you do have, um, you know, an X-lap or something that, that might take a bit longer or, um, you know, an orthopedic you know procedure or something like that. So I think that even if it is um, a really quick procedure, it's still good practice just to have your nurse in there doing that monitoring so that they're getting the practice to do it and they can see what normal is and then see, oh, this is deviating from... From, from usual, like maybe I should be thinking about what's happening here. Absolutely. And that's that's what I teach the students all the time. I said, you have to know a lot of normal before you'll be able to identify abnormal. Yeah. And and I talk to them about just using their own pets to feel pulses. Um, you know, I, I used to keep my stethoscope on the lounge so I could listen to my cat's heartbeat. Um, just, you know, because I was paranoid from the start. <laughs> but also because, you know, you need to hear a lot of normal before you can identify abnormal. You're absolutely right. You know, before you you need to hear heart murmurs before you can identify that, you know, well, perhaps this isn't what a normal heart sounds like or this isn't what a normal pulse feels like. Um, you know, yeah, it's incredibly important. Yeah. And with um, the the pain relief as well, I even know when Matt first started out um, as a vet, he and, and he has sort of locumed a bit too, um, he worked at practices with really very basic um, pain relief protocols that now he would look at and be like, oh, I... I probably, I'd probably have an issue doing that now um, mm. because I guess when he first started, he was just following the lead yeah. of what these vets were saying you would give. But when he looks back, he would be like, hmm, it's just, you know, a, a, a little bit of um, like oral non-steroidal anti-inflammatory is probably mm. not going to cut it for this <laughs> no. animal. No. And, and I guess it's, it's the way I look at it too. I think, well, if this was my pet, 
what would I want done? And, yeah, you know, I guess that whole anthropomorphism, you know, can have, can also, you know, have its, its toll on you if you sort of think about, you know, well, maybe this, if, I, if I'm having, I mean, I have had an X lap and I know that, you know, I had fairly good analgesia and I didn't feel much. Mm. And, and, you know, just sometimes that, you know, you do a dog spay and, you know, that has got to be painful. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and providing the analgesia and um, another thing that, that I did to myself, um, and you may have seen this in one of my lectures, is I cut my finger in half with a bar mix. Oh. <laughs> well, you obviously weren't in that lecture because no, I, 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 I put a picture of my finger up there and I was sober. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I literally cut my finger in half. I cut the last phalanx in half. Oh. And, and I went into, I was actually with a vet friend at the time and she asked me, do I need a Band-Aid? And I said, no, I think you need to take me to a hospital. I think I need and, an esky with some ice on it for if my <laughs> finger actually falls the whole way off. Well, it didn't. My nail, my nail kept it on. <laughs> and you know the first thing they did when I got in there was they did a local block yeah and you know that that was incredibly painful putting lignocaine in but the, yeah. then the, I think they gave me hydromorphone or something um, to take orally post-operatively and I felt nothing like it was yeah. amazing the drug was incredible and yeah. to have such good analgesia um, you know made a tremendous difference like it was very traumatic what I did because a I did it to myself and it was a pretty yeah. stupid thing to do yeah, yeah um but but to be well analgies like you know it just made the whole event a lot less traumatic exactly and I've heard you talk about um how anxiety feeds into pain levels and and also feeds into um the level of um analgesia that we need to be dosing so I think it is really important to address the issue of control like when we're in hospital we have control of our analgesia because we can talk and we can say I'm a this out of 10 or like after my cesarean I just had a button that I can push <laughs> and I think I got endone when I pushed the button and yeah. I was like hmm I do have to look after a newborn so shouldn't have too much fun with oh this you're button, in hospital but... someone else is gonna look after it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right um but I mean like we really, really want to um, be sure that we're on top of pain relief for animals because they don't have that control, which is going to feed into that anxiety if they start feeling yeah. pain and, and experiencing wind up. Yeah. And and also, you know, something that, that we underestimate too is it's really traumatic for the caregiver. So, you know, yeah. if you're a nurse in a practice and, you know, you truly believe that one of your patients is not being well analgesic and there's nothing you can do about it. Like that's got to be really upsetting. Oh, definitely. And I think you've got to give owners the benefit of the doubt in that situation too, because I've also heard you talk about how like your little white fluffy dog um, might experience pain, uh, you know, on a, a far greater scale than, you know, your stoic kind of buff-headed mm. staffy <laughs> or something like that. So, mm. um, and owners know those subtleties really well. Like we will always ring the following day um, post like a dental or something. Mm. And even if this, this patient has had the same pain relief protocol that every other patient has and 99% of callbacks the next day, the owner's like, yeah, he's fine. He's really happy. The one owner that you get that's like, oh, no, I don't, I don't know. He's still not quite right. I think hmm. that he's in a bit of pain. I'm like, come straight in. We yep. will get something else dispensed. Like yep. you just have to straight away jump on that, I think, and give them the benefit of the doubt because the owners know and it is distressing to see. Yeah, yeah. 
again, on another topic that you discussed at the recent conference, um, I something that I learned is uh, how long anesthesia actually goes for. So you were saying that it starts at pre-med and actually doesn't finish until the patient's ambulatory. So mm. I think in practice, sometimes we're so busy that we're getting pulled away from from those patients as soon as they're, you know, off the table and in, re- in recovery um, and we're not continuing to monitor. So with that monitoring, that should be extending, you know, well into recovery. Definitely, definitely. And it's, it's very easy for me to say because, you know, I have one job and one patient at a time usually. So I take my hat off to nurses in practice that are doing mm. so many things at once. And I, I, I don't think I could do it these days. Um, but, you know, it, it's just so important that there some, is someone monitoring that patient as soon as it's pre-medded. And what we'll do with our patients when we pre-med them, because we're in a, we're in a pretty big hospital, um, and there's a lot of people around. We can have, you know, over a hundred people in the hospital at any time. And, you know, we'll take the animals out of the wards, but once they're pre-medded, we'll make sure they go into our ICU just so someone can be watching them the mm. whole time. And, you know, obviously it's written up on their cage what, what drugs they've had. So, and, and we've done a handover when we've taken the animal into ICU pre um, preoperatively. So, so the ICU techs and nurses, you know, know what's going on with the patient. You know, know what drugs they've had, know what to expect, because you know, obviously, we use a lot of different combinations of drugs, and and we'll see different effects with those drugs. So, depending on the drugs we use, we may see different things. So, you know, really important. And again, working in a very large practice and working with students all the time, we have enough hands to be able to watch patients, um, you know, until they're ambulatory postoperatively. So, you know, what, what, what I'd say to nurses in private practice is, you know, especially with those higher risk cases is like keep them on the floor in surgery with you. Like yeah. you know, make sure that you're able to watch them or, you know, yep. put them out in reception with the receptionist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just Just do something so they're constantly watched because – you know, probably once a year we'll get a, a call from a, a veterinarian saying, you know, I've had a post-anesthesia death, which I didn't anticipate. You know, can you tell me what's happened? And, mm. you know, generally, you know, we can't say for sure what's happened, but, you know, could it have been avoided if someone was watching them? Possibly, maybe not. But, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to tell. But, you know, if, if, you're, if you're watching the case when something goes wrong, you know, obviously you're going to have a much better chance at um, a good outcome for that patient. And often it can be something really simple, particularly in cats, like mm. just obstruction, can't it? Yeah, like because we know what cats do. As soon as you extubate them, they ventriflex their necks. Yeah, yeah. And that, and that means that they can't breathe sometimes. And that worries me a lot when we sometimes when people can't afford to pay for treatment of a tick, um, tick paralyzed animal, and they want the absolute bare minimum. So sometimes we will provide sedation and the antiserum, um, and you know. Instruct them on searching, but they will not admit the patient. Um, and then that really concerns me with sending home a patient that's sedated. So I'm usually like yeah. grabbing, I usually tell like the the owner, but if they've got kids, I will grab the kids too and be like, your job is to make sure that your cat's neck looks like <laughs> this and not this, or your cat yeah. might die. Yeah. And they're like, <gasps> I don't mean to scare <laughs> them, but I'm like, somebody has to watch this for, you know, a while. <laughs> 
Now that, now the kids are having nightmares, that's okay. <laughs> I probably should clarify to them that it's just, you know, for a few hours when they get home. But, um, and there is a really... They're going to be in therapy now. <laughs> and there is a really good paper that I've heard referred to at a couple of conferences and I can't think of the name of it, but it lists like um, the percentages um, of likelihood of um, of deaths associated with anesthesia. And I think that cats are like yeah, twice yeah. as likely. I think the yeah, numbers are quite yeah. low. I think it was something like 0.05% for dogs and 0.11% for cats or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that was the – it's the Broadbell study. So that's a really massive multi-centre study that was done in the UK Um, quite a few years ago now. But, you know, there were – I think there were 97,000 dogs and 70,000 cats. Like it was a massive study. And, yeah, the the cat ones really surprised me and and something that they – they did say in that paper was the an increased risk to cats would be IV fluids, yeah. um, which and also endotracheal intubation. Mm. And I guess I don't know if that's because some of them may go into laryngospasm. And I guess with fluids, we all know cats are fairly predisposed to fluid mm. overload. So if that you know cats obviously are a little bit trickier with fluid therapy than dogs. So. Um, you know, it's a really interesting study and it's got some really good information. And in terms of that study and in also just um, your knowledge from working in the field, do you have any idea if most of the anesthesia-related fatalities for um, practitioners, if they're happening um, prior to induction or on induction or, um, you know, immediately post-operative and in recovery, do you know where they're they mainly happening? They're mainly happening um, post-anesthesia. Yeah. So uh, usually it's usually maintenance anesthesia is not usually an yeah. issue because animals are usually instrumented up. They're on yeah. monitoring. It's the the big percentage and it's something like, I think it was like 30% uh, were post-operative. Mm. So that's, you know, that's when they're recovering and perhaps not being watched as that's well right. as, as when they are under anesthesia. So, yeah, post-operative. Really yeah, important. and they, you know, once when they're on the table, they've got the eyes of the vet on them, and as you say, the monitoring equipment mm-hmm. and the nurse or nurses. So that's why that period really worries me. And and in private practice, I'll be the first to say that for you know the first few years we were open, we didn't always have enough people rostered on because we were growing as a business, and there wasn't always um, someone who could watch that patient constantly. But I'm happy to say we've got to a point now that we have enough nurses on that the most important patient in the building is that one in recovery and we try to sort of speed up that period with um, active warming like the bear hugger and that sort of thing but um, someone's just got to be eyeballing that patient. And, and you know, we need to have some monitoring standards in place and I was just at Science Week um, in at the first week of July and I was on a panel discussion with a couple of anaesthetists and they're actually talking about um, introducing some basic monitoring standards in Australia for veterinary medicine because there, there isn't any. There's there's no there's no sort of black and white. You know, this is what we should be monitoring in these cases. Mm. Um, you know, America has it, the UK have it, um, and you know, it's just something that the anesthesia chapter is looking at. Um, and you know, they have to be realistic. You know, you have to. You know, you can't put in monitoring guidelines um, and think that it's only going to be referral practices and university practices. You know, you need to be able to work with with what equipment people mm. have um, and and decide what's important in monitoring. You know, is pulse ox imagery important? Is blood pressure monitoring important? 
is capnography important, you know? Mm. Um, and, and I guess these days um, monitors are so much more affordable than they used to mm. be. You know, you can buy a pretty good multi-parameter monitor for a couple of thousand yep. dollars these days. I mean, they used to be tens of thousands of yeah. dollars. So, you know, there's not that much excuse. And, and, you know, the way we did it at uni for a while is we needed to replace a lot of equipment at one stage. So we thought, okay, you know, how are we going to afford to do this? So we just put a surcharge, I think it was like $20 on every anaesthetic case for a mm. year or so. And that, that gave us a little pot of money to be able to afford to buy a new monitor. Yeah. So, you know, there are ways of doing things that, that you know, don't have to be that onerous. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be a huge outlay for the practice at once. Mm. And you'd be amazed um, how you really can justify that extra surcharge or, you know, adding a little bit extra to the price to clients um, and just be able to say this is a gold standard surgery procedure because we do have this um, equipment. We have yeah. this multi-parameter equipment um, yeah. because, you know, when we quote people for DSEX, we're not the cheapest that they could come to. Mm. But, you know, often when they'll say, oh, they got quoted this at another place and this at another place, why is yours more expensive? We just list what we do um, yeah. and, and why it might be more expensive. And then like most of the time they'll end up coming with us. And and when I've discussed it recently with Matt, I've said, well, it's the same as me. Like when I'm, I know I've got to have a, a cesarean second time around and I'm not going to ring up and try and find like the cheapest obstetrician <laughs> to cut open eight layers of my body. You know, it's not like I'm shopping for who sells the Panasonic, you know, 38 inch TV, the cheapest, like they're all like widgets yeah. that roll out of a factory. But when it comes to having, yeah. you know, an operation for your pet or yourself, you really do want it to be as safe as possible. So I think you, you'd be surprised that clients are not necessarily turned off by having that little bit extra to pay just to be able to be taking their pets somewhere that, you know, they're going to be in safe hands. Yeah. And just, I guess, identifying with them that there is a risk involved with anesthesia. I'm, I'm sure that is done, but, but, you know, some people I think don't understand that there is a risk involved with anesthesia and, when you're looking at your more critical cases, um, you know, that's even more important um, that you have those discussions with, with the owners that, you know, this isn't straightforward. We may have to, um, you know, this animal may, de- your pet may need a blood transfusion, you know, they, they may need an arterial line mm. put in so we can do invasive blood pressure, just letting them know. Um, that it's not straightforward, that there could be complications, I, I think is really important. Definitely. I also was really interested um, at the conference when you were talking about um, assigning ASA grades to patients. I think that's a great idea mm-hmm. because then when you are choosing, um, you know, who will be assisting with the anesthesia or who will be doing the recovery, you can say, oh, this is like a grade three or four. We might need to get a senior nurse um, recovering this patient Absolutely. or that sort of thing. So can you talk on assigning those grades a little? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you really were listening. Yours to my was my favourite, Trish. <laughs> did you only go to one? Did you uh, Did you do more than one? <laughs> uh, no. Uh, no, I don't think I did actually. Um, yeah, no, ASA status, so that's the American Society of Anesthesiologists and it's a grading system for anesthesia basically. And what they, what they do is they grade patients from one to five and one being a young, healthy patient with no existing disease and five being a patient that you wouldn't expect to, to survive surgery so um, or without an intervention. So, you know, some of those GDVs and things that come in, you know, would be ASA fives because they're not going to survive without the surgical procedure or the anesthesia. 
So every case that um, we do um, for anesthesia, uh, we have to do an anesthesia plan for every case, every time. So um, what we'll do is we'll examine our patient, um, we'll look at the history, we will assign an ASA status. So if it's a, let's say it's a, an older dog coming in for a dental, you know, the little white fluffy dog with mitral regurge, you know, it could have a, a three out of six heart murmur. You know, perhaps we'd say that's an ASA 2 or 3 because it has got some sort of disease that may affect anesthesia. So just by assigning it a grade, it makes us think more about our anesthesia plan and the complications that may arise with that plan. Um, again, for example, a little white fluffy dog, um, you know, we've got a geriatric patient for a start, so we've got some heart disease. Um, you know, we want to be careful that then, you know, we assign it an ASA status and we'll think, okay, how is that going to impact my anesthesia? And, you know, you'll go through a list of things, you know, okay, if we've got blood pressure problems, what are we going to do? And, you know, we're not going to approach this patient the same as we would a young, healthy patient because a young, healthy patient, we're probably just going to fluid bolus it. And again, you know, a patient with cardiac disease, we don't want to do that because they're not going to be able to compensate. So it just makes us think a little bit more about, the variations in the plan that we may need to make and, and you know, certain drug selections, you know, perhaps again with these patients, if they get bradycardic, we're going to think very seriously before we give them an anticholinergic or before we give them atropine because we don't want to make their heart rate 200 again because they're not going to compensate. So it just really makes us think about what we do and perhaps the choices we're going to make. And with the anesthesia plan as well, what we're doing is we're anticipating any complications that may arise. So we're thinking about all those things that are going to happen like hypotension, hypothermia, um, hypercapnia, you know, all those things that can happen under anesthesia and how we're going to address them. And something that we also do for every patient is we work out emergency drug That's doses right. because you, you know what it's like in an emergency. Yep. If you have an animal that has had an arrest, the last thing you want to be doing is there with a calculator mm. trying to figure out how much adrenaline you're going to mm. give or how much atropine you're going to give. So, you know, it's anesthesia is all about preparation. Mm -hmm. It really is. And, and rushing into it never ends well for people. <laughs> exactly. So having the emergency doses either written up or drawn up mm. prior can make yeah. all the difference so that you're not running around like a bunch of headless chooks. You've anticipated, right, I think this thing that we thought might happen is happening. Should we do this? Yep, go. Yeah. Um, and I'd not heard of ASA grades before, so it's something that I took back from the conference and, and incorporated at our practice. And I think it's also really handy because sometimes as a veterinary nurse, you'll look at the procedure and think, oh, this looks like a really complex surgery because they're going to take this flap of skin and twist mm. it and, you know, mm. put it back over where they've taken this lump off in this really fancy mm. way and it's really complex. And then you might look at another procedure and think, well, that's just a simple like tooth extraction or lump removal or whatever it is, but it actually might be the more um, simplistic surgical procedure that is the far more critical anaesthetic. Yeah. So yeah. you can get yeah. red herrings just based on what the actual procedure is. Absolutely. And, you know, especially, you know, if you, you do a lot of orthopedics in your practice, some of those, you know, they can be ASA1 patients because they're young, healthy patients coming in for a cruciate repair. But, you know, those animals may become severely hypotensive in mm. surgery and, and this is where I think the nurses can come into their own because, you know, they can say to the surgeon, you know, we're having a blood pressure issue here, the yep. systolic pressure's 60 or whatever, you know, do you think I should 
you know, let's try and turn down the vaporizer. Let's get rid of some of that isoflurane because we know that's going to be causing vasodilation and giving us blood pressure issues. So, mm-hmm. you know, can we add more analgesia in because we know we're not going to get those issues with opioids and, mm-hmm. you know, this is, you know, where nurses can be so valuable in your practice. Yeah, absolutely. And I can see why this is an area that you're super interested in because I just think it's, um, I think it's really interesting too. I, um, I don't get that much, you know, actual FaceTime in surgery anymore. But yeah, as I said, yours was the first, um, lecture that I went to on the, the first time slot on the first day of the conference. And I was like, yes, this is great. And just (laughs) writing down tons of stuff and coming back and telling Matt and Dr. Sophie, and, um, they were really happy to, to take those things on board. So I think a lot of vets really are open to that. If you can say, Mm. this is a thing that we can be doing as nurses this is how we would Mm. do it and you've you know emailed them some information on ASA grading or making anesthesia plans I think you can come into your own and they would welcome that if you do it in the right way yeah absolutely because it's going to make their life easier and it's going to take some of the stress away from them love it now dealing in such a stressful area of uh, vet medicine, how do you look after your mental well-being and prevent compassion fatigue? And if you feel overwhelmed, what do you do? Um, I guess I'm very lucky because I work with such an incredibly supportive group of people um, in the anesthesia team specifically that I work in. Um, I work pretty closely with oh, six or seven veterinarians and two to three technicians that are all we do is anesthesia and we have a team that is so supportive. Um, so, you know, I think I'm so lucky to have such a supportive environment to work in. I guess something that I like to do is water really calms me because I grew up living on the beach pretty much and sailing every weekend mm. and and I, I love the beach. I love the ocean. So, you know, if I can take myself to the beach for a day, it really helps me recharge and reset myself. Um, binge watching trashy telly, mm-hmm. <laughs> that really helps as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess if I feel really overwhelmed, I try and take myself away from the situation if I can. Mm-hmm. I think that's incredibly important to put some distance between you and the situation yeah. so you can look at it objectively. Um, you know, finding a place that you feel safe. Like if, if you're really stressed at work, you know, perhaps you're not feeling safe at work. So, you know, you need to take yourself away to somewhere where you do feel safe and supported. And I guess break down what's overwhelming you. That's, that's, you know, Mm. I think that's really important because breaking it down and to me that'll involve more lists and boxes to tick. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And, you know, but sometimes, you know, if I'm feeling overwhelmed with what I've got to do and usually this time of the year I get really overwhelmed because I've got lots of stuff coming up with IVEX and presenting at IVEX and student exams at uni and all sorts of things going on and different deadlines and and certain things. And if I break it down and look at it on a piece of paper and sometimes I'll even write down things I've done so I can tick those boxes so it looks like I've done something. I'm guilty of that too. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to people that I feel safe with, you know, that will tell me how it is, you yeah. know, that – that will help me put things into perspective because, you know, when you're so close to the situation yourself, sometimes you you can't see it. Can yeah, you? yeah. You need someone else from outside to see it and look mm. at what you're doing and go, okay, well, you need to do this, this and this. How are we going to facilitate you doing this? And as I said, I work with a tremendous team and, you know, if they know I'm really overwhelmed and I've got stuff on, they'll try and take some of my teaching workload or, you know, they'll do my day on clinics or they'll mm. say, we're covered in clinics today. We've got enough people. You stay at home and do what you've got to do. So, you know, I, I just, I can't, 
say how important it is to have that supportive team to help you get through it. Yeah. And for everyone, there's going to be a different sort of recipe that you follow for looking after yourself and for addressing the situation when you feel overwhelmed. But um, I've just been jotting down what you're saying and I could follow your recipe because it's (laughs) very similar to what I do. I think sometimes when you break down a problem on paper, you realize, oh, actually nine out of 10 of those things are not the issue. Only one out of 10 of those things is the issue. So it's not actually as big as I thought. And now I've identified the main problem. And I think the shielding and the distance um, from the problem and just giving it some time and approaching people you trust can really help. Um, the beach I find naturally relaxing too. And trash, like as we both agreed today, we can totally <laughs> do this interview as long as it doesn't eat into <laughs> MasterChef time. Well, well, MasterChef isn't really trash. Like when we're talking trash, we're talking about married at first sight and those sorts of things. My trash is like Kardashians or something like that. So. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. It's like <laughs> super trash. It's the trashiest trash you can get. And if you have a, a real cry, Crisis, Trish, I recommend some Kardashians. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I did watch Keeping Up with the Kardashians at one stage. So yeah. I, I think I binge watched when I was going through a tough time a, a month or so ago. I think I binge watched Lucifer on um, Netflix. Yeah. What did we do before Netflix? <laughs> How did we live? Exactly. It's it's like it's it's a blessing and a curse. It, it is, yes. <laughs> now, what do you think is the main area of our industry that needs attention or improvement? That's a, that's a really tough one as well because there are a lot of things that need attention. Um, you know, I think we mentioned before the voluntary registration of vet nurses and techs. Like I think that is a tremendous step forward in yeah. our profession because we're going to ensure minimum standards are met. Um, you know, it's really recognising the world is different and there's different pressures in our industry than there were 20 years ago. Mm. I just again, think I was incredibly lucky to get into the profession when I did because things weren't so hard 20 years ago. Mm. Like the world has changed so much and, I, you know, you can't really put your finger on exactly what's changed, but it, but it just has. Mm. Like things aren't, you know, things, everything seems more stressful these days than it used to um, and, and, and I, I, can't, I can't explain why that is. Um, I think gender imbalances in our profession mm. um, generally, um, veterinarians and vet nurses and vet techs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't have many male vet nurses, which is such a shame because yeah. there are, you know, you've interviewed a couple of them and, and you know, they're trailblazers. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we're, we're seeing more vet techs, male vet techs coming through. I think we've got about four or five in, in this year's final year class. Mm. So that's pretty exciting. But but I don't know if that will ever change because it's not really a profession that someone could support a family on. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so that's always going to be tough. But I think it's always such a good thing when you have more gender quality in a workplace. Yeah, yeah. Where you don't, you know, have a whole workplace full of women. Um, you have some men there as well. They just bring a different perspective into the workplace. Yeah, so, definitely. Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, the whole compassion fatigue and and looking after ourselves and our colleagues you know having each other's backs mm. again we all get so wound up in our our own worlds and and um you know another saying i think i would have up on my my whiteboard at some stage is you know you never know what anyone else is going through be kind always you know and and you don't yeah. like you know you could you you don't know what other people are dealing with. And, and sometimes when you hear, you know, you've been 
thinking really badly of someone yeah. because, you know, they haven't been turning up to work or they haven't yeah. been carrying their own their weight at work or you haven't thought they'd been carrying their weight and then you hear what they're dealing with yeah. and you go, oh, my God, how could I be such a nasty piece of work? <laughs> so it's just, yeah, be, being kind to each other. Yeah, so such a simple um, mm. truth and, and I've mm. been there before with um, thinking like, oh, why is this person trying to get out of this shift or that and then found out what's going on and then, you know, I've I've said to to employees before like you need to just quietly tell me when yeah. something major like this is happening because um it changes everything but you you know people aren't always going to want to approach you and tell you that because people have the right to be suffering or enduring or experiencing anything privately so you're right you do have to kind of err on the side of um this person's being crazy what are they oh hang on yeah. something major might be going on yeah. All right, or let's why just... are they in such a bad mood? Um, yeah. And, and again, not knowing what's going on in their world. Yeah. Um, you know, just sometimes you just have to stop and say, do you want to talk about it? Yeah. And 90% of the time they do. They just want yeah. to unburden and and feel like someone understands what they're going through. And, and, to, and, you know, that can make all the difference, can't it? Yeah. And same with clients. Like, um, I don't know if this is just particular to Matt or particular to a lot of vets once you get one-on-one -on -one in the consult room with a client, but often, um, you know, they might be rude on the phone or rude in the waiting area or, you know, acting funny or annoying and support staff or, you know, myself are like, oh God, not this person again. And then when they get into the consult room, it's almost like a confessional and the vet's trying to take a history on the patient, but the owner's saying, my mum's got, um, I, my mum's terminally ill with cancer. My dad's got dementia. I've spent mm -hmm. the last year nursing my mum. Now my brother's just found out his wife's going to leave him. And, you know, they yeah. unburden all this stuff to the vet who's like, okay, and and you said the diarrhea was how many days? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, you know, so Matt will often tell me, oh, okay, I've, I know why this person's been um, difficult mm. for people to deal with. They're having a really rough time. And then you're like, oh, okay, that's right. That can happen with clients too. And I, I now explain mm. that to all trainee staff who all reach a point where they ask me like, how do you deal with when people are making a decision to not treat or to euthanize when we know we could fix it? And like, how do you not hate them? And I'm like, because I mm. don't know what they're dealing with and have they got sickness everywhere and death everywhere and like you know are they looking after multiple people and can't look after a dog that needs a bandage that has to stay dry for six weeks like you know you just don't know absolutely so it's just it's it's so easy to judge isn't it and one dr seuss quote i, I, I like is uh, it's something like unless someone like you cares an awful lot nothing is going to get better it's not yeah and he, he's such a profound philosopher isn't he yeah <laughs> the students get sick of seeing dr seuss quotes in my lectures but to me they're just all so you know they're they're so profound yeah. but you know, they're, they're so basic, yet they, you know, they just, they mean something. And you're like, this is a kid's book? It's brilliant. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the Toy Story movies. They're not, they're not kids' movies. I know. Matt <laughs> and I totally like movies. watching the kids' movies more than Eli does. He doesn't watch. We just put it on and he's like tearing around the house and we're like, great movie, Eli. Now, if you could reach out and thank a mentor who's helped you in your career and personal development in this industry, who would it be and what would you say? There are so many people. Like, I can't, I can't. I can't name one. I mean, it's literally taken a village for me to, to make me the nurse I am today. And, 
And when in, I think in 2017, when I was um, VNCA Vet Nurse of the Year, you know, that, that asked the same questions and, mm-hmm. and that was my, that was my answer. Like it's, it's taken a village to get me where I am. So I'm mm-hmm. just incredibly grateful and humbled to be given the opportunities I've been given and to have had the support of so many amazing people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess to all of them, I'd just say thank you for believing in me and encouraging me to push boundaries and for being there for me and having my back when, you know, perhaps things haven't gone as well as we wanted them to go. Yeah. Well, I think you've definitely pushed the boundaries um, and you've definitely been a trailblazer yourself in terms of um, being someone who's presenting and teaching at international conferences and on such a high level and involved Um on so many different committees and with so many different groups. So yeah, it's, um, it's been wonderful to interview you. And I did, I do remember when you were with Bet Nurse of the Year in 2017, which is why you were on my podcast list for a very long time. And I'm very glad that we got around <laughs> to recording this. <laughs> but um, I guess if I could say anything, it's if I can do it, anyone can. Like I'm, I'm, I'm no different from anybody else. I'm really not. I just, like I said, if you're passionate about what you do when you speak about it, it, it shines through and and there's so many different things out there you can do and you can do to stand out from the crowd and and there there are just so many opportunities and you've just got to want them and you've got to find them and and get them basically. That's right. Follow find your interest and follow it and work hard and surround yourself with good people. Yeah, exactly. Follow your bliss. That's it. <laughs> well, it's been very blissful, Trish. Um, I will let you enjoy the rest of your night um, and the rest of your week and we will talk soon. Well, thanks for having me, Kat. And again, congratulations on the success of your podcast. It's absolutely amazing. Thank you very much. The, as I always say, the reality has become a lot bigger than the dream and I feel <laughs> very blessed to be um, to be manning the ship. Um, I, I just um, look forward to hearing more from more amazing vet nurses like yourself i'm very happy to be on board thanks cat thanks for listening to radio vet nurse the podcast to help us make more free episodes subscribe and leave a review find us on facebook and instagram at radio vet nurse or drop in at radiovetnurse.com